What our community group has done uh, to go smaller in order to gather is start with prayer. We asked every couple in our group to commit to praying about who the Lord would direct them to be in community with this fall. And it has been so encouraging to get these text messages back and have these phone calls and, and visits with folks that have said, we've prayed and the Lord's leading us to start a group in our neighborhood. We've prayed and we'd love to be with these two or three couples from our community group. We've prayed and we know a couple um, families at Fellowship that don't have a community group and we're going to reach out to them and start a group together. And so it's been uh, really encouraging to, to pray together as a community and ask the Lord uh, who He would lead us toward. So there's a community group meeting here at Fellowship. It's actually a young professionals community group. And recently they have had to creatively think through how to take this large group and go a little bit smaller. So even before we kind of rolled out this structure of circles of six, they were already doing that. So they were able to look at their large group, see some different members in the group that would probably be great facilitators of discussion and encourage those people to start discussion groups. And that's what they did. And it's, it's been going very, very well. I spoke to one of the girls that is actually a discussion leader in that small group. And she said there has been so much uh, fruit and blessing that's come out of being a part of that small group. And she said things like, transparency and authenticity of their discussion time has been really rich. There's been a depth to their conversations that probably wasn't there before. And the accountability of, of having uh, the members come and be committed to really do their work and encourage one another and love and pray for one another has been really rich. And so I would just say to keep an open heart and an open mind to uh, be willing to think through the structure of Circle of Six and how um, you're going to adopt that in your group as well. Thank you, Abel and Christy. That got me amped up. It made me want to do a fist bump like a boom, baby. That's what it made me do. I don't, that might be too much. But I will say, if you're in a community group, great. You know the benefit of this. If you are not, please sign up. We will get you connected as soon as possible. Love to have you in a circle of six with us. Also, if you're here right now with us live stream, then we are so pumped. Makes me smile like this is actually a real smile, not made up. I'm excited you're here. And we want you to know that we have features for you. There's a chat feature. Go on there. It'll be like you're in the lobby hanging out with friends. There's a prayer request feature. So click on that if you want prayer, that button, and then we will pray with you during this service. So please do that. My name is Simon Foster. I am a Rogers pastor, but I also lead our Merge premarital experience. I get to be here hanging out with one of my friends, Nick Rowland, this guy, What's good, Nick? Simon, being here with you is good. <laughs> are we being cheesy enough? I think we are, but we actually do like each other. Um, it's fun to be on a staff like this and to be at a church like this where we get to worship with you online. And guess what? I'm so pumped because we have so much good news. I got two more good news opportunities for you. You ready? The next one is we at Fellowship care a lot about marriage. 
And if you are married or you're thinking about getting married, we have opportunities for you. Merge is our eight-week premarital counseling experience where you are, if you're seriously dating or you're engaged, please sign up for this. Re-engage. If you are already married and you want some marriage enrichment, please sign up for re-engage. Both of these opportunities will be offered in September. Tell friends about it, coworkers, neighbors, anyone you think will benefit. We'd love to help you with marriage. All right, wait a second. I just, just got some news in my in-ear, like breaking news. It's actually breaking only if you didn't hear about it last week. Breaking news, next week, we are reopening our campuses. The elders have given us the thumbs up, the green light. We will be here if you would like to come and be here in person with us, 8 a.m., 9.30, and the 11 o'clock service. You can be with us, or you can stay at home and join us like you are right now on live stream. We will offer that at 9.30. Here's the deal. To start up with our campus next week, there's a lot to that. So I would like for you to know we've got some things for you to think about. First, seating is limited. By limited, that means we really need you, this is important, we really need you to go online, fellowshiprogers.org, and we want you to sign up, reserve my seat. Please do that. Help us help you. That's important. Also, no children's or student ministries. We will not have that when we open up our campus. Also, just to clarify, children and students can still come to church, right? True. That's why I have Nick with me on stage. Sit with your family. That's a good thing. Nick, thank you. That's what I'm here for. Also, please, face masks are required. Wear those. And then also practice social distancing. Here's the deal, fellowship. We want to worship with you. We are excited to worship with you, whether it's in person or it's online. We are rooting for you. We are with you. We want to be Jesus to our community with you. Excited to be here. Nick, please give us more good news. More good news. Well, hey, my name's Nick. I'm a Rogers pastor here at Fellowship, and I, I work with the training center classes. Our goal is to, to give you the resources to be prepared and equipped to know God's word and apply it to your life. And so this fall is gonna be a great time uh, to, to jump in on some of those classes and, and continue to grow. We've got a few uh, opportunities, a couple that are new for us. The first is we are gonna have an in-community option for doing personal Bible study, for learning how to study your Bible as we read 1 Thessalonians in, in our clarity reading this fall. And so what that's going to look like is some, some training videos that will come out each week under the resource section that says, hey, here's a way to study the Bible more in depth as you're reading 1 Thessalonians this week. So we encourage you. That's available that to everyone. Yeah, you're in. in. It's going to be great. Mike's going to do one. it. So yeah, jump in on that. That's going to be great. We also have a live stream panorama option that's going to be Mondays over the lunch hour. And then you'll be able to do a live interaction working through panorama from your place of work, from your home, wherever you are online. We also have some self-paced online studies on Panorama of the Bible, We Believe, our theology class, personal Bible study, and, and aligning your finances to the heart of God. And so you can register for those, work through them through the course of the semester. There'll be online discussions and videos to watch and all that good stuff. And then finally, we have some studies that you can do in community um, that you as a group can work through together as your community group study this fall. All of these options are out there for you to get trained and equipped. If you want to find out more about any of those, go to Training Center, NW 
bwa.org, and that's where you can hit register and bippity-boppity, you're signed up and good to go. We are so excited to see our people grow and to be a part of that growth this fall. And that growth doesn't just happen in community. It doesn't just happen in our studies. It actually happens in our worship. You see, worship is about telling God, celebrating how great he is, but that worship, that celebration actually transforms us to be more like him, and that's our goal for this time now. So let's, let's pray and enter into our time of worship together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for this chance to be here, um, to, to respond to the goodness and the greatness of who you are, and I pray that that act of response, that act of celebrating you, will shape our hearts, transform our minds, and change the way we live. That's our desire for this time, that you'll be honored and that we'll experience the joy of knowing you. We love you and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we get to lift high the name of Jesus, sing his word.
says he is the firm foundation. And this morning we get to pray that we'll build our life upon that. Let's see. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a Good morning, fellowship. My name is Kyle, and I get the privilege to be one of the worship pastors here at our Rogers campus, and I am grateful for the opportunity to worship together this morning. And as I've been reflecting on my personal time with Jesus throughout this past week, I can't help but to be thinking about and praying for my future son. My wife, Meredith, is pregnant with our first child, and she's been pregnant for about 20 weeks, and we are pumped up. But as I begin to think and pray about our little buddy, these words have been on the repeat in the back of my head. And this is my prayer for him. Jesus, would you be the one to whom my son clings to? Jesus, would you be the best thing in his life? I've been praying for him to not make idols out of his mom, out of me, or his favorite hobbies, but I've been praying for him to think the absolute most of Jesus. And Eugene Peterson explains that an idol is a little G God with all of the capital G God taken out. And in other words, anything we worship other than Jesus can be an idol in our lives. I'm gonna say that again. Anything that we worship other than Jesus can be made an idol in our lives. 
And today we're gonna get a sneak peek into the lives of the early church and we're gonna catch a glimpse of their own struggles with idolatry. And we get to hear Paul proclaim God's message to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And so this morning, I wanna encourage you to do the same. Would you join with us as we continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and Jesus only? Nothing else but Jesus. Let's worship him together. rock I will stand upon this rock I will stand glory glory we have no other king but Jesus Lord of all we raise the anthem crown him Lord of all your kindly rule has shattered and broken the curse of sin's tyranny Jesus, my life is hidden neath heaven's shadows, your crimson flood covers me, your crimson flood covers me. Believe 
every victory Jesus is better make my heart believe than any comfort Jesus is better make my heart believe more than all riches Jesus is better
virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt praise the for us to allow the things of everyday life to 
to captivate our attention and even our worship and to crowd you out of the focus. So as we hear your word today, will you by your spirit bring the life, death and resurrection of our Savior into the forefront of our hearts and minds. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning. My name is Mark Schatzman, and I'm part of the Fellowship Bentonville team. And uh, it's good to be together, at least at this point, virtually, and looking forward to next week, even live, for those of us that feel like we're ready for that and it's the right fit for our families. But good morning to you. Hey, let me ask you and start with a question. Uh, How would you explain uh, something to someone who has absolutely no context for it? In other words, how would you describe yellow to a person who was born blind? In 1986, uh, I found myself leading a small mission team for six weeks in the former Soviet Union. Uh, Now, at that time, uh, the Iron Curtain had not come down, and so uh, the Communist Party had successfully locked their citizens out of contact with the outside world. And I found myself living for six weeks in Leningrad, now called St. Petersburg. And during that time, I met a young man named Anatoly. He told me that his friends called him Tal. Tal and I became friends, and over the next few weeks, uh, Tal trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. And so that meant for the next several weeks while I was in Leningrad, I would meet with Tal early in the morning in secret to walk through kind of basic grounding of the Christian faith. Now, Tal was 22 years old and engaged, I was 22 years old and engaged at the time. And so we swapped a lot of stories about life. And I remember one time in particular, we were at his one bedroom flat that his whole family lived in. We were cooking over his one burner gas stove in his little kitchen. And he turned and asked me uh, what I liked to cook when I was back in the US. And I told him uh, that I didn't really cook, I only microwaved. And Tal looked at me with his confused face and said, what is microwaved? And I said, well, you know, a microwave, it's a, it's a small square oven that's electric and you plug it in and you turn a little dial, that was early microwaves, turn a little dial and, and in about two minutes your food cooks without any heat. And he started laughing at me and he said, you're always joking. I wish they could invent some magic boxes like that. You see, Tal had no concept of what it meant to to take in new information with with no context of which to to fit it in. Now, here's the thing. The newness of a microwave is no big deal if you don't understand that. But when the issue is something of life and death importance, like eternal destiny, it, it becomes a big deal. How do you communicate something new when someone has no context for it? Well, that's where we find ourselves in this clarity series uh, this morning. You know, we've been working through the church as it's progressed through the book of Acts, and we've seen how the movement of the gospel has greater and greater expanse through the region and now even into the world. You know that the book of Acts started in Acts chapter 1 with the commissioning that Jesus gives his church, where he says, I want the church to be my witnesses at home in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and ultimately to the, to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, what we find is that 
the further out from Jerusalem the church goes with the gospel witness, well, uh, the less context there is for understanding that gospel. And now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17 at the church in Athens where Paul finds himself alone. Alone because his ministry teammates, that would be Timothy and Silas and Luke, they're still back in Berea, about 250 miles away. He's waiting for them to catch a ship and catch up to him. And he's there in the city of Athens alone. And we pick up in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 16. The text tells us, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, Athens is the center of Greek culture and thought. Uh, it's not the largest leading city. Corinth has that reputation. Corinth is the leading city politically and economically, but Athens, it still holds the place of shaping philosophy and intellect and literature and science and rhetoric. See, Athens was the home of the greats like Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, uh, Epicurus and, and Zeno. And so if, if 400 years before Paul got there, well, Athens was really the center of the Greek world. But by the time Paul was there, it had shrunk down to a town of, of only about 10,000. And yet that 10,000 became culture shaping for the entire Greco-Roman world. In our country, it would be like Washington, D.C. and maybe New York City would be a Corinth. But L.A. and Seattle, they, they would be the Athens. They would be the place where intellectuals and philosophers flocked to shape thought for their world. Athens was the home of the famous Greek Parthenon, and you maybe are familiar with some ancient pictures of that and the ruins. Uh, the Parthenon was the uh, temple and the home of the, the 12 uh, gods of the Greek mythology. Now listen, in the, the Greek mythology, we look at that in our culture now as kind of a curiosity. And young adult fiction is written about it. But you understand, in Paul's day, that Parthenon, the Greek mythology, and those 12 gods, they dominated the worldview of the culture. And so while Paul was waiting for his teammates in Athens, the streets were full of idols, which meant that on every street corner or in front of every shop would be a statue for one of the 12 Greek gods of the Parthenon. Now listen, before we roll our eyes and think, oh, the ancient world, they were just so ignorant. I, I want you to imagine, imagine that an archeologist a thousand years ago finds themselves in what used to, or a thousand years from now, finds themselves in what would uh, used to be Fayetteville, Arkansas. And they uncover a statue that looks something like this. Yeah, what do you think? They would think that they've stumbled across the stadium and a statue that was some kind of uh, ancient worship site in northwest Arkansas. And actually, for some, they'd be correct, right? Uh, allegiance to the team might be borderline idolatry for some. You might know it if it's you, if, if you find your happiness factor rising and falling based uh, upon the Razorback or your team's win-loss record. But regardless, this is how Paul finds himself in this culture with statues that have captured their hearts, minds, and imaginations. And how does he respond? 
Well, far from mocking or judging the culture and the people around him, the scripture records a very specific response. It says that Paul was greatly distressed. In other words, his heart was heavy because he saw lost people all around him. He was burdened by the fact that they were weighed down by gods who could not save them and idols who could give them no life. And Paul was moved by the spiritual condition of his city. Are you moved by the spiritual condition of our city? Does it weigh heavy on your heart enough that causes you to want to, to move into it and, and say something and do something? Because our culture has idols too, doesn't it? Kyle referenced that during the worship set when he quoted about idolatry. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And if that's the definition of idolatry, oh my. Idols are everywhere, aren't they? And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. We know that our culture's idols fixate on things like work and finances, family and children, leisure and travel, beauty and fitness, sex and entertainment, sports and hobbies, power and recognition. And just like Athens, these are created things that we look to to try to give us life that only the creator himself can give. And when we succumb to idols, ourselves as believers, when we bow our allegiance to an idol, does it greatly distress our heart enough to cause us to move back to the creator God? When we look around and see men and women that we love who are under the weight and trapped by those same idols, does it greatly distress or move our heart in, other, uh, in such a way that it would cause us to introduce them to their creator? Look at verse 17 in Paul's movement. Chapter 17, verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. Now we're getting a glimpse of Paul's ministry pattern. It starts in the synagogue with Jews and Jewish converts. And he reasons with them from their starting point. What would their starting point be? What would be the Old Testament and the story of Yahweh? And so he starts with the Old Testament and the story of Yahweh with them. But when he goes to the marketplace, place, that's not their starting point. Their starting point would be that Parthenon and all of those gods and idols. And so he begins to start at their starting point that's very different than Yahweh in the Old Testament. Men and women, you live in a similar situation. God has assigned you in the same kind of place where you live around people who do not know Jesus and yet maybe they have some foundation or familiarity uh, with Christianity in the church. But you also live right next to or work right next to men and women who have no context for the story of God. 
Yeah, the reality is Northwest Arkansas is a diverse place spiritually. We are filled with transplants who come from all over the country and the world. And some, some even though they find themselves geographically in the Bible belts, they have no context for the story of God historically. How does Paul move in with that? Look at verse 18. Just that first line, we begin to see what happens next. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. And you know we have Epicureans and Stoic philosophers living among us today, right? My grandkids uh, discovered Disney Plus during COVID shutdown, and I'm glad they did because the truth is I like watching Disney movies with them. And my all-time favorite still is The Lion King. The Lion King stars two Epicureans and one Stoic. Uh, the Epicureans are named Timon and Pumbaa. Uh, see, the Epicureans believed in gods, but they believed the gods were detached and not involved in day-to-day -day life. And as a result, they believed there was no life after death and only the here and now, and they were thorough materialists. The chief end of all of life was to experience as much happiness as you could right now. And happiness was always defined by an Epicurean as someone who had no pain in life and no worries. In other words, Hakuna Matata. Yeah, Timon and Pumbaa were the Epicureans. But in that movie, they had a friend or made a friend who was a Stoic. And his name was Rafiki. See, the Stoics believed that the gods were everywhere and in everything. They were pantheists. Uh, they believed that all of creation was connected by this divine principle that the Greeks called the logos. And as a result, God was kind of everywhere in the trees and the breeze and even in the fleas, right? And as a result, everything was held together by a great circle of life. Well, the Apostle Paul finds himself in that kind of culture in the marketplace. And he understands those two worldviews well enough that he can articulate himself thoughtfully and respectfully. Look at all of verse 18 there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. They wanted to debate an argument. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Don't you see it? Paul's starting place with people was different based upon where they were, but his ending place was always the same. He started where people were spiritually in their own worldview, but he ended with the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Paul went to the point that they needed most. The text tells us that Paul preached the good news of Jesus Christ. Now in the synagogue, that meant he reasoned from the Old Testament and showed how Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. But in the marketplace, when they had no context of one God who created all, well, Paul had to start differently. And he had to always bring the conversation back to who Jesus was and how he raised from the dead. And folks, that's a great model for us. We engage our culture by understanding their worldview, but always pointing to Jesus Christ and his good news. Look at verse 19. 
how the story continues. Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so Paul steps courageously into the Areopagus. Uh, If you have a King James Bible, it's translated Mars Hill. And that's because the Areopagus was a hilltop court over the city that was used for debate. In other words, the Areopagus was both a place and it had a function. It would be like us saying Wall Street. And Paul then stood on the culture's turf and he spoke the truth of Jesus Christ. He stood on that place of debate, not because he loved a good argument, but because he loved a good God. And he loved the people that his God loved. And he moved into their world. He was distressed, remember, over their lostness. Listen, we live and work and play on the culture at large's turf. And the ideology of our day is not bent towards biblical truth. So the question really now is, do you see your home? Do you see your job? Do you even see your hobbies and social networks as a platform that God has given you to bring his truth to your neighbors and coworkers and friends? Because just like Athens, our culture has a worldview. You know, one of the best ways to find out what your culture is thinking and how they see the world Ask yourself this one question. What's their vision of the good life? How would someone describe and chase after the good life? If they do that, that is their worldview. You know, my city has a vision of the good life. The vision of the good life in the city I live in is usually wrapped around a happy, healthy family, a successful, prosperous career, and hobbies and interests that they enjoy. By the way, I think that's why COVID was so threatening over this last six months. It shook our our idols of a healthy family and a potentially successful career. And for sure, it shook the fact that we could no longer go and do the leisure activities and the travel that we wanted to do. But don't forget what Jesus says about all idols, any vision of the good life that we have. He says, what does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world of the good life that they dream of and yet to lose their own soul. Paul moved. He was moved by the spiritual condition of his city and then he moved into the spiritual condition of his city. How did he do this? This is where the rest of the text gives us some real practical coaching on how we can do life in the culture that we live around and love as well. Verse 22 tells us what Paul did next. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at the objects of worship, well, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, 
I am going to proclaim to you. Do you notice how Paul starts his conversation, his engagement with his culture around him? He doesn't say, look at you. This is ridiculous. You call all these statues gods? That's foolishness. Uh-uh. Paul has a totally different take. He says, listen, I've been walking around your city and I've been observing carefully who you are and, and how you live. And I can obviously see that you're very religious. In fact, you're so religious that you're covering all the bases and you even have a statue over here that's labeled to an unknown God. Well, that I'm here to introduce you to this God who you do not yet know. You see, in Paul's world, this Athenian world at least, there were no absolute truths. Well, guess what, folks? Their world is our world. Relativism is the only absolute truth that our culture embraces as a whole. In fact, there's so much untruth that's peddled around us that everything we hear is automatically dismissed or held with cynicism. Truth is in, ends up being defined as, uh, by what we deem is right uh, in our current circumstance or maybe at our present moment. You know what? We are not that different than the men of Athens of old. Have you ever gone through your email and you're reading spam after spam and you're deleting emails so quickly that you realize you accidentally deleted an email that mattered and had something you needed? Well, I think that's our culture's approach to truth. We so quickly dismiss everything that we see that it's all been lumped out as just spam. We don't even realize we toss out the truth of God We've even coined a, a term in our culture right now. We call it cancel culture. Well, Paul steps into their relativism and he somehow builds on common ground. How do you find common ground when a shifting relativistic culture is all around you? Well, look what Paul did. Notice that Paul identified what they worshiped. Folks, all people worship. Mankind is hardwired for worship. Francis Chan said that we were created to worship someone else with someone else. Side note, I think that's why we're all longing to come back together and worship as the people of God. We know we are created to worship with brothers and sisters only to the Father who's joined us to himself. But the truth is, whether or not you even uh, bow your knee to the one triune God or some of the culture's idols, everybody bows their knee to something or someone. We have something in our life that produces a sense of both awe and gratitude. And that something is supposed to lead us back to a someone the things in creation that inspire awe and gratitude are meant to drive us to the creator himself. And so Paul starts where they are, which is he talks about there's something. He says, men of Athens, I notice that what you worship. He identifies it as a thing. But he says, now I want to come and tell you who you can worship and points to the creator God. He starts on common ground with what it is they give their allegiance to, 
but then points them to new ground of someone they need to know. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And right now, Paul is speaking to the Stoic. He says, God is the creator. He's not the created. And God is the all-powerful Lord of heaven and earth. He's not just this life force. He's a life giver. And then next, he will pivot and talk to the Epicureans in verse 26. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So to, to the Epicurean, he says, God is involved in your life. God is not detached. He's all present. He's all working. He's all sovereign. And then he uses this powerful, powerful verse in verse 28. For in him we live and move and we have our very being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. By the way, lock in on verse 28 there. This is such a powerful vision of life. Imagine that if every day you wake up out of bed, you could live with a conscious thought that in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we live, we move, we have our very being. You would be caught up into such a bigger story that it would propel you even through a weary Monday. Notice that in verse 28, Paul actually quotes one of their Greek poets which tells me that Paul knows right up front that all truth that you see in the culture is actually still God's truth. And so he jumps on that to point them to the truth. It also tells me that Paul actually read the Greek poets. And guess what? We can read our culture's poets too. Our poets of the day are filmmakers, musicians, and academics and engaging their work and their art is how we understand the worldview of our times. So when you see a film, when you listen to a lyric, when you read a book, pause immediately and ask, what is their vision of the good life? And what does that vision tell me about God? How can God fit into that vision? The answers you find will give you common ground to step into their world. And it'll also allow you to start introducing the new ground that our culture needs so badly. The ground of Jesus Christ at the cross. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. 
And now Paul gets very specific and introduces Jesus Christ. He does not spend a lot of energy debating them about their worldview. He keeps the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Folks, the reason that we too move into our culture's worldview is because we are moved by people's spiritual need. It's not because we're fueled by anger over their politics or their philosophy of life. No, we are fueled with a passion for Jesus and a compassion for people. So we keep Jesus the central issue. It was Philip Yancey who once said that no one ever converted to Christianity because they lost an argument. No, they converted to Christianity because they saw Jesus Christ. In fact, arguing just tends to fuel more argument. Pretty soon, you argue enough with somebody, you'll lose sight of even the central issue. Tell me that's not true on some arguments you've had with your spouse. And so it is with our culture as well. And people, they start to, in that argument, delete the truth of Jesus that they're hearing right alongside with the spam of every other lie in the world. No, we need to do what Paul did. He engaged the Athenian world masterfully. He was observant. He was compassionate. He was thoughtful. He was persuasive. And he was focused on Jesus. Hey, I heard something encouraging this week. As we've been moving our community groups to meeting smaller in circles of six so that we could meet safely during the pandemic, we've had several of our groups decide that this was their opportunity and they were gonna now form groups that were focused on their neighborhoods and their neighbors. And so several community groups are launching with that neighborhood focus and you have folks like the Hewlett's and the Schaefer's and the Pierce's and the Calico's and others who are, who are launching a group specifically for the purpose of inviting their friends and neighbors and coworkers. That's powerful. That's being moved by the spiritual condition of the city and then moving into the spiritual condition of the city. And I can't wait to hear how it goes for them. I wonder if it'll go the same way it did for Paul. Look at the next verse, verse 32. When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know, the Bible has no record of an official church actually being planted in Athens because of this trip there. There might have been. We don't know. What we do know is what the Holy Spirit chose to have recorded for us. And that is that there were different responses to the good news of Jesus. Three different responses. You had some who rejected and scoffed. You had others who heard and were intrigued. And you had a few who believed the truth and received Jesus Christ as Savior. Listen, if that was true for Paul, that will be true for us as well. We will need to expect there will be different responses to truth around us. 
Our job is just to be a faithful and loving witness. So how about for Paul? Was his mission in Athens successful? I mean, if no house church was officially planted and he was a church planner, was it successful? Yes. Yes, because success is defined as being a faithful and loving witness to Jesus Christ. The results of that witness, well, that's God's department. That's his pay grade. Ours is just faithful and loving witness to Jesus in our culture. And so let me ask you a question. How do you see yourself and the world in which God has placed you? Because you are on assignment in your job. And you're on assignment in the neighborhood you live. And you're even on assignment in the hobbies and interests you pursue. God's actually placed you there on purpose and, and for a purpose. And when you buy in and see that higher purpose, all of a sudden it will give greater passion to your home life and your work life and even your hobbies and, and interests. Are you moved by the spiritual condition of your city enough to move into the spiritual condition of your city? Because your world has a vision of the good life. And you can enter that and use that to build common ground while you introduce the new ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're like me, I find a couple of tools helpful in sharpening my thinking in this area. And two books in particular have helped me. Uh, one was, is written by a friend and a, a mentor of mine and actually was the book of the year decades ago for uh, Christian books. It's called Finding Common Ground, written by Tim Downs. He does a great job talking about how to introduce conversations in the ordinary events of life. And, and if you get this book for even just the chapter on work alone, it would be worth it because he gives a great biblical vision of the workaday world. The second book is Tim Keller's The Reason for God. And Keller gives a great uh, articulation of the idols and issues and objections that our culture wrestles with and helps us understand how to dialogue with those. But let me close with a, a question and a challenge this morning. The question is this, who in your world, who in your sphere of influence needs the truth of Jesus? And I mean specifically, can you think of two or three names that come to mind right now? Would you write them down? And the challenge is, would you begin to pray for them every day through this fall? And I think as you do, you will see what God will do as he raises up opportunities for you to build common ground and then introduce the new ground of Jesus. I think we'll all be surprised how God answers that prayer. Hey, since we live on assignment, uh, wherever God has put us, can I pray and close our service with a benediction for all of us, myself included? Uh, when my kids are li were little, and now even my grandkids, and I tuck them in at night, uh, I usually will pray a very simple benediction that comes out of number six. And let me pray it over us right now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord place his face of grace and peace upon you so that you would glorify him everywhere you go and in everything you do. Amen. Have a great week, fellowship. We'll see you next week.